Hi, no experts allowed listeners. I'm really excited for this episode. We have a special guest, Jared. And Jared, Jonathan, and I all went to college together. And when we were in college, we were we were crazy. But this episode is serious most of the time. Most of the time. An appropriate amount of the time, I would say. We just wanted to give you a heads up. Because we were recording with an additional person, our audio quality isn't quite up to our normal standards. But we think the content is worth giving to you anyway. So, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others, instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story, and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, it's a beautiful day. It is. In the neighborhood? That's what I was waiting for. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Hold on, I gotta take off, put on my slippers and zip up my uh, cardigan slash hoodie. I'm ready for it. Hi, neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) That was a really good Mr. Rogers impression, if I can say so myself. Well, Seth, I'm excited to not only welcome you to the neighborhood today, but our second ever very special guest, Mr. Jared Lorraine. Jared, how are you? Gosh, mister, I'm doing well. How are you? (laughs) I'm really glad to be together. This is just like the old times, uh, except I'm seeing you and Seth together on my screen and thinking about all the times that I would see the two of you having pizza together when you wouldn't invite me. So it is truly just like old times. I was literally just waiting for that to come up. I have no pizza in front of me, so it's not yeah, just like old me times. Neither. Okay. It and feels like it. It's at least it's at least bringing up those painful memories. <laughs> we did invite him, we right? Did, but he was there always busy. So then I was just busier than both. Yes. So we so stopped, then we stopped because we didn't invite you and then you could never come. Okay. I know. We're all terrible. This is the outcome <laughs> of this. And since we're all terrible, I have a question for us to consider. What would you do? In this particular situation, would you want to be outside of a Panera Bread or a Dunkin' Donuts when they close and take out all the leftovers from the day to throw away? I'm going with Panera. Like, there's no question there for me. I'm not a, I'm not a huge donut fan, unless we're getting those, like, specialty-made donuts. But Panera has some really good bakery items that I try to avoid, but they have, like, that what that giant cookie that has sugar just drizzled on top of it, that chocolate chip. And uh, whenever I go to order it in the Panera app, sadly it shows me like that the cookie is like 1,500 calories. So I don't. But, you know, if they're just going to throw it away, I will gladly. Yeah, you might as well. Yeah. Panera also, I think, just has a wider variety of just better food. Dunkin' Donuts is like donuts, bagels, and then 
lots of varieties of microwaved sandwiches. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I'm thinking Panera would just be a better bet because you could easily walk away with like a pot of mac and cheese or soup or <laughs> a full salad in the bread bowl. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I like how bread, bread bowl. bowl. A uh, whole thing of mac and cheese, and then you're like, or salad, like two very different ends of that. Yeah. Extreme. But let's be real the bread bowl is the sole reason to go wait outside of Panera. Yes. How many of us have ordered something in a bread bowl from Panera with a side of bread? I have. Definitely done that. I definitely have as well. We are the carb kings, it has been decreed. <laughs> All right, I know that was a really random question, but I think it can at least be a stretch to be related to our scripture today. So Seth, will you read our passage? I'd love to. This is Exodus 23, verses 10 to 13. Plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lied uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day you must stop working. This gives your ox and your donkey a chance to rest. It also allows your slaves and the foreigners living among you to be refreshed. Pay close attention to all my instructions. You must not call on the name of any other gods. Do not even speak their names. And why did you pick the New Living Translation this week? Well, admittedly, I wanted to try something a little bit new. And a lot of the ways that this passage was translated across a lot of major translations were pretty similar. But I've, I've appreciated the New Living Translation, mostly because it's, a, it's another translation that's pretty accessible, uses language that's designed to be easily understood, to be open and available to people of different reading levels. But looking a little bit more into the background of the translation, they actually put a lot of effort into both translating literally when the original languages were a little more clear, but then also when things were a little more complicated, making some choices to kind of keep that same level of readability through it. So among some of our more modern translations, it's a really unique balance between the literal translation, like a word for word and a thought for thought translation. And it kind of goes back and forth depending on the content to make a translation that's really consistently worded in a lot of spaces throughout to be as accessible as possible. But as you read that and Jared, as you heard that, what were some of the things that stood out to you the most? So something that stood out for me is just the idea of rest because actually i just uh was writing about rest just yesterday uh in in the exam i was taking and how important the seventh day the seventh year is and when i see that it really connects to sabbath you know the seventh day the last day uh and how the example that God sets is, is one of not being a workaholic, but of taking time off, 
of not being so focused on of commodities of acquiring everything, but knowing that it's okay to be relaxed. And it's not just people who are relaxed, who aren't supposed to work, right? Like there's something about the land that gets to re- relax. I think that's interesting too. Like it's the animals, right? On the seventh day, slaves and foreigners. But then every seventh year, like even the land sits fallow. And we still do this today, right? Mm-hmm. I think. I'm from South Central PA, so I think they still, like there is a crop rotation, but they also like leave fields bare sometimes and that like allows them to kind of regenerate. Right. Well, that's the thing is, you know, we we often see criticism of the Bible and like rightly so as not being a good source for, you know, scientific hypotheses or ideas but the agricultural practices here are good agricultural practices, just widely accepted agricultural practices that are, that are healthy, that are restorative to the land. And I think you picked up on some, you both picked up on something really important that the idea of Sabbath is kind of all encompassing. And I really appreciated you highlighting that. Before I, before I dig into that a little bit more, I think it's worth highlighting where this passage is coming as well. Because the contrast of this picture with what the Israelites have just emerged from is pretty stark. So this passage in Exodus 23 is coming, of course, as you might guess, in the book of Exodus. <laughs> but in a way that allows... Uh, that allows us to think about the Israelites kind of setting the groundwork for their new community. They've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, where they've been oppressed under hard taskmasters and labor constantly. That is their role and their purpose and their function. And the latter part of Exodus, uh, even though it's longer after the Israelites get out of Egypt, a lot more attention is paid to the earlier part of the book because it's more exciting and more actionable. And later in Exodus starts to look like some of the other books in the Hebrew Bible that we aren't as excited about because it's a lot about community living and about rules and rituals and laws and other religious practices that were kind of ordering Israel's life or being documented that they were doing so. And so this falls in the middle of that as an example of, again, how Israel is to order its life. So we see this idea of Sabbath here. And I think we often return to themes like this that are tied back to that creation story, Seth. But for both of you, what does Sabbath mean? What does that that concept mean? And you kind of both touched on this a little bit, but what are some things that stand out to you as important characteristics of the idea of Sabbath. I want to pull up uh, the, I want to say it was a theology question because, and I wonder, oh yes, there it is. Um, Because what we're talking about really reminds me of it. And uh, I definitely, I used, I had to draw in a resource uh, for this exam. And so I used Walter Brueggemann's uh, Sabbath is Resistance. was the book and it really was good because it made me stop and think so often i think especially for 
I don't know if you'll both have the experience, but in seminary, people are like, past, you know, you're going to be pastors. You have to set an example. You must take Sabbath. It's so important. You have to take it. And with, with that language of have to, must, I think it gets really legal. It kind of, I mean, I agree Sabbath is important, but it, it took away from me a lot of times, like what Sabbath means and, and how I should take it. But why I take it is very important. I'm not taking it just because I, I'm told to. And I think that that's a big thing about what Jesus talks about with the Sabbath is and the idea of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath uh, is, is not letting Sabbath rule over you, not, not saying like you do this because, because you're told to, but you rule over Sabbath in the way that you are trying to figure out why you do Sabbath. Right. What's the passage about Jesus saying, or Jesus asking the question about being was, Lord of the Sabbath? Well, was humanity made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath for humanity? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and that, yes. that, but I think that idea is, is really essential. Like so many things that have incredible divine intentions, they can easily be manipulated into something that is guilt or shame inducing or something that imposes the very type of burden that Sabbath is intended to alleviate in some way. Yeah. When Brueggemann talks about um, Sabbath is, is countercultural and you brought it up in it. It's why it made me think of this book. You know, the, they had just, it's an Exodus. They had just left Egypt where you worked nonstop where you didn't have the Sabbath and God wanted to show that God was different and that the people needed to be different. And so taking Sabbath becomes something I do to show a for rest for me, but to show other people that rest is okay, Mm -hmm. that it's okay to not work 60 hour weeks to take some time off, even though you have a lot of things going on, even if you're stressed about finances, to take some time off and maybe watch a football game on Sunday. That's something I've been doing more recently. <laughs> and while it seems silly and we might say, well, that's, you know, we don't connect that religiously by the act of rebelling against what society says, it's something religious. So Seth, what about you? What are you thinking? What stands out to you as being important about Sabbath? When I think about Sabbathing as a verb, I don't know if you can use it as a verb, but I'm gonna. When I think about Sabbathing, I always think that it detaches like our worth from our work. Like it, it says that we're valuable even when we're not producing something. So I think in that way, mm-hmm. Jerry was talking about how Walter Brueggemann says it's, it's really countercultural. It's actually a form of resistance. I, I think that's exactly what it does. It pushes back against that, that you don't matter because you can produce something for society. It says that you just matter even when you're resting. So there's a couple of things that stand out to me as kind of memories of how Sabbath is taught. Uh, And I think some of them actually kind of emerge in this scripture here. So you have the passage that kind of feels, compared with the rest of this short passage, it feels a little bit out of place right at the end where God says, pay attention to all my instructions and don't think about any other gods. 
And so there, there is this aspect of Sabbath that is about worship, right? It's a theological statement. It's a religious practice. It's, it's a worshiping act hmm. because you are articulating and advocating for a larger reality, just like both of you were mentioning. But there's also sometimes the next step of implementing some measure of rest. So throughout, I mean, I'm just thinking about American history and how the Christians, the traditionally Christian Sabbath of Sundays had some different rules or laws applied to it. Some of which even in some places in central Pennsylvania are still in effect about blue laws and not being able to sell alcohol until a certain time or a lot of businesses that weren't just profiteering their delicious chicken sandwiches, like a lot of businesses being closed on Sunday. There was part of this idea of rest that was kind of woven into the fabric of this country because its roots were predominantly Christian in terms of the folks that were unfortunately like conquering and pillaging the land that our country is on today. But there's also this piece here that I think goes a little bit farther about how Sabbath is related to equity. Mm. That's the idea and the word that came to mind because it's not just something for the people who can afford to take a day off. It's for the ox and the mule. It's for the land. It's for the folks who are charged with laboring, whether they be a foreigner or a migrant, uh, or as they understood it at the time, someone who was enslaved and indebted to be working in a certain space. Sabbath was for everyone. And it's in this sense, it was this great equalizer that truly kind of dismantled and resisted power structures and other systems that were intended to hold people down. And you see this too in thinking of the passage in Leviticus 25 that talks about the year of Jubilee, kind of reiterates some of these ideas. But then every 50 years, after seven groups of seven years, there's this great year of Jubilee where land is returned to the people who, who possessed it originally, slaves are set free, debts are forgiven, because there was this undergirding understanding that everyone, everything that was part of Israel deserved dignity and deserved almost the sense of like opportunity and equality beyond what their circumstances dictated. So if your crop was destroyed, that didn't mean your family was destroyed. It meant that you might have to move and work for someone else for a while, but eventually the community was working to preserve that land to return to your family. And all these ideas come through with this idea of Sabbath that goes so far beyond, I think, what we're normally taught. And apparently, just based on what else we see in the Bible, it goes beyond what Israel actually ever practiced. <laughs> we, don't see, we don't see this come through very clearly. But on that, I think, if I may, like to shift to the conversation about what's the point of this text, and they're like all the texts we talk about, maybe many, I think the question that comes to mind for me when I read this text, the first one, is what areas of life God is interested in? Because there seems to be this all-encompassing idea of Sabbath 
as God is establishing norms and patterns and even rules and laws for this new community, there's not much that escapes kind of this umbrella of Sabbath. So how, how do you all re react to that, both to what I was talking about with you know, this idea of equity and Sabbath, and I think that connects to some of what Jared was speaking about specifically with Sabbath as resistance, but also kind of this idea that God is really interested in more than just making sure that you're sleeping a little bit more one day a week. Really, I really liked it. I, when you were talking, I thought about the I, the idea, and I know you brought it up. Is first of all, a you know, not everyone can easily just set aside a day and be like, I don't have to worry about anything. And I think that's part of what was built in to the verse that Seth read earlier. You're leaving your fields for the people who can't afford food. Sabbath isn't just about resting. But in a way, and I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but in a way, it's, it, it is a rest, but it's, it's meant to give someone else a rest from worrying about where am I going to find something? Where am I going to find the food for my family? Because God has already said it's going to be here. When we look at that verse, odds are not everyone is, is on the same seven-year cycle, you know, <clears throat> While Joe's fields are, are sitting this year, um, Frank's are going to be next year. Tina's the year after that. <laughs> Frank and Tina yeah. is real life. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's this perpetual cycle, though, where people are being provided for by the Sabbath. I hadn't thought about that, Jared. In my head, everyone was on the same cycle. But I think that's a, that's a helpful point that if people are on different cycles, right, it creates like this kind of overarching system that doesn't have these gaps, like these gaps in it in terms of time, mm -hmm. like someone can always get a meal. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, obviously I'm not a, a scholar on ancient, ancient times, so I can't well, say whether I'm right, but I hope so. You don't need to that's, be. That's the point exactly. of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, that is true. Well, I guess along with that, it kind of to shift the focus more so to our context today, was what is this idea of Sabbath being all encompassing? What does that mean for efforts that we put forward today to pursue justice in our setting, in our context? Because I think there's this level of justice and equity and provision being woven into the very fabric of Israel's society. And again, there's no documented place in scripture where this is actually happening, um, short of maybe some conversation about the book of Ruth, where there's some gleaning from a field going on, but there's really not that much. And it's, and it's kind of startling given how much attention is given in the first few books of the Hebrew Bible to this kind of idea. But it is clear that at least the intention is for these ideas to be woven into the very fabric of Israelite culture and society. And in a space where that kind of equity and justice kind of stands against the very fabric of our society, how do we go about 
pulling those threads out, kind of unweaving things and trying to weave something back together that makes more space for more people, not just to get by in our, in our communities. Nowadays, aside from the man who lives in farm area there, a lot of us aren't around farms or we don't have, we don't grow our own crops. I mean, there's a vegetable garden in, in my yard, but I don't think that doesn't sustain me for everything I need. And so I can't just leave it open every seventh year for people. And for my Sabbath, maybe I could, instead of just sitting around and resting for my Sabbath, because it's supposed to be worshipful, it's a spiritual experience, I can do something with my Sabbath. I have this extra time. Maybe I can go talk to an organization who works for people, works with people who can't find food, and I can volunteer my time with them. Maybe that's an act of Sabbath. I'm almost wondering if it's not an either or, but a both and. That Sabbath creates space and almost requires of us both taking time to acknowledge that the earth is God's and everything in it. And our constant labor and toil and production isn't going to change that. Hmm. But also working to make sure that those who don't have the opportunity to rest, don't have the opportunity to be secure in and, and rest in the idea of where their next meal is coming from or where their next rent payment is coming from or the next day that they're going to work, that working towards those ends also may in fact be an act of Sabbath because you are further instilling the worshipful idea of rest and connection with the divine, with the earth, with one another you're further instilling that into our communities. Jared gave one practical way to do that. I'm wondering if our next step isn't to think about like other practical steps that we could take. Hmm. What do you have in mind? Which is certainly me passing yeah, the that's fine. to you. To that's fine. <laughs> I'm thinking of ways we can change the fabric of society to be more just at a structural level. I think in the meantime, we certainly need to go and talk to charities and organizations that are helping people be fed. But I think that's that's like a short-term fix for me. But like in the long-term, we have to start doing something that, that like creates, I think you talked about this, creates the situation in which people can flourish, not just keep getting by, not just keep cleaning every year, right? But actually yeah. like have, have productive lives and have lives that also allow them to rest too. It's so interesting though, even the language that you use there as you were finishing up, is it's so ingrained into our minds and into our society that to be of value, you have to be productive. Like that's, that's the language we use is like, to just talk about the bare minimum of like a quote unquote acceptable person. It's whether or not they're productive. That's literally <laughs> the word that we use is whether or not they're producing something for our families, our communities, our culture to consume in some way. I'm glad you picked up on that because that's why I tried to add at the end that there's resting with it too. It's not just production, right? Because I I don't want people to be valued based on just what they produce. Oh, right. And yeah, and that was not like a value (laughs) statement at all. I was just pointing out that I would have said the same exact thing. 
but it still indicates that there's some underlying value to that. Yeah, language. I, I didn't take it like that. I didn't think you were dissing my my wording, <laughs> right? But you're right. That just the phrasing that we have that we use that we have embedded in us, like tells us the way that we think about work and value. Yeah, and I think I think I'm with you, Seth. Though in thinking about both the immediate kind of, I almost think of them as like aid opportunities. Like we need to go to the places where wildfires and hurricanes and floods and landslides are destroying homes. But we also need to ask the questions about why are homes being built in those places in the first place? Or what conditions are we contributing to that are making those kinds of natural disasters a little less natural and happen a little more often? We have to both go and extend a hand of help to those who need it but we also need to ask questions about why they need help in the first place and address those systems and structures that are designed to hold us back and hold us down and to keep us kind of in this machine-like mode of we got to hit the daily grind, got to pull up our bootstraps and make sure that we're producing to be valuable and instead make sure that people are secure and safe and healthy without having to put their lives on the line or their well-being on the line. I wonder how Sabbath helps us see some of those cycles that people get trapped in. Like when you're already participating in the cycle constantly, right, and just getting by. Mm. Like, do you ever have the vantage point to see the the way that that the way that the cog in the machine just turns, right? But I wonder if by resting, kind of taking a, just even a moment to kind of step out of that if that's when you can see the way people, the way that these systems operate. I think about a church I went to when we were all at, uh, at Messiah. And one Sunday every year, at least one Sunday every year, I should say, they, instead of meeting in the church for service, they would meet because they all had signed up to to do service projects, mm. to go uh, either help out organizations who are in need or maybe a family had reached out to the church and they needed something done at their house. And so members of the congregation would sign up to do this. This was what they would do on, on their Sunday. And I thought of it because, you know, Sunday we, we typically associate with our, our Sabbath. And so in a way their Sabbath was going out of their comfort zone, going out of their community to see what actually happened in the world outside of what they were used to. I think that was on point, Jared. I do too. I think it's a good last point for us to land on. Can I pray for us? Yeah. Let's pray. Liberating God, you set your people free from oppression and freed them for abundant life in you. Free us, your people, today from the systems that hold us down, that treat our bodies like machines, that value production over all else. Free us for refreshment and rest in you. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who took on flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jared, yeah. it's been a privilege having you join us as our, I guess, 
It's our second ever guest episode, but our third ever guest in the history of No Experts Allowed. But thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. And a special thanks to our good friend Jared for joining us for this episode as well. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're going to the epistles, which we've never done before on our show. History! We're looking at Philippians (laughs) 4, 1 through 9. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.